So that was the model that was used. The uh, who would qualify? So that would be: Were you injured as a result of a conflict-related event? Yes. Were you disabled as a result of this? Yes. You qualify, and that was it. Basically, plain and simple. So that's what we thought this should be plain and simple, but turned out it wasn't. Paul Gallagher is one of approximately 1,000 victims who were left seriously injured during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Today, he is a PhD candidate at the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice, and he is a key figure in the Injured Campaign, which seeks reparations for those seriously injured during the Troubles. The campaign was founded by a group within the Wave Trauma Centre, joining together to seek recognition and compensation. This effort will be the subject of today's podcast. My name is Sarah Millman, and welcome to LawPod. For this episode, we interviewed three members of the Wave Trauma Centre, Paul Gallagher, whose voice you just heard, Jennifer McNairn, and Peter Heathwood. Throughout this episode, you will hear their stories, their experience with the campaign for reparations, and the impact this payment could have on their lives. You will also hear from Dr. Luke Moffat, a senior lecturer at Queen's University Belfast and the director of the Human Rights Centre, whose research focuses on reparations and victims' rights in international law. He has worked extensively with the Campaign for the Injured and has recently been involved in the Reparations, Responsibility and Victimhood in Transitional Societies project at Queen's. Just a notice for our listeners, this episode will include descriptions of graphic violence throughout. It has been 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement signified the end of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, but for many, the pain the conflict caused would be far from over, as Jennifer explains. In 1998, uh, it was peace, Good Friday Agreement, and um, there was nothing about people who had been injured. Uh, And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. Um, I think it was only because the Women's Party, who was around at that time, had said, what about the victims? We wouldn't have got a mention at all. Um, and uh, in fact, I think in a lot of conflict zones, it's how many are dead, but you never hear about how many have been left permanently disabled. And I think the true cost of conflict can't be counted unless you take that on board. In the years since the peace, the campaign has tried to secure recognition and compensation for those living with permanent and severe injuries. Part of that process has been to share the stories of their injuries and their lives and efforts since. My name is uh, Jennifer McNairn. Um, I'm 68 years of age. Um, I was born in Belfast, born and uh, brought up in Belfast. Um, I was injured uh, uh, during the Troubles in 1972, I was 21 years of age. Um, I went into a restaurant with my sister um, one Saturday afternoon after for a coffee and a new warning bomb went off and I lost both legs and my sister lost both legs and an arm. Um, there were other serious injuries as well uh, and two girls were killed, the restaurant was packed. Um, I was brought to the Royal Victoria Hospital and went through all the medical stuff uh, and over to Musgrave for rehabilitation. Um, and sort of out into a society um, that really wasn't disabled friendly. Okay, um, my name is Peter Heathwood. I'm 65 years of age. Uh, just became a pensioner this year, which was pretty horrific. Um, I remember when I was 40 I didn't like that and I certainly didn't like being 65 really. um, 
my my story really would begin, I suppose, when I was married when I was twenty. My wife was eighteen. We were like childhood sweethearts. Uh, but in Belfast in those days, you didn't go too far to meet. I met a girl around the corner. We went out. We got married. We had children. I I went to St Joseph's Teacher Training College, which is part of Queen's, uh, and uh, have a degree in education. I became a history teacher, and was working in the early seventies, basically doing subbing jobs. So I left the subbing job when I was offered a job to work in the insurance business, doing sales, life pensions and mortgages. And I liked that. Um, again, meeting people, it was always my thing. Uh, and I was doing great with money. I was earning twice what a teacher did in a month in the mid-70s. And the wife and I decided that it's what I call a capitalist phrase in my life. We were going to go into the property market, buy houses, rent them out in flats and do all that sort of thing. And anyway, we bought this big house, nine bedrooms and three bathrooms for six and a half thousand pounds. Now that sounds like nothing now, but it was a wee bit of money then. Um, and we divided it into three apartments. The plan was we would live in the bottom one to be paid off the six and a half grand, buy another one, blah, blah, blah. And as John Lennon once said, life's what happens when you're making plans. So um, things were going well. I was eventually the head of a team of six salesmen, a managerial position. Everything was going well. Rented out the house. We were in it for after the work was done about three months. And I was working out in Lisbon one night. And I phoned up Anne, the wife, and said, I'm going to work you. I'll not be home tonight. She says, I've made you shepherd's pie. I loved her shepherd's pie. So I said, I'll come up the motorway. But I have to go out again. So I come up to the house, sitting with a baby, it was six o'clock. My three children then were aged six, five, and three months. So I was playing with wee Louise and the wee baby bouncer thing when the doorbell rang. Oh, big deal, Anne got up to answer the door, and the next thing I heard her squealing, gunmen, gunmen. And in Belfast in the 1970s, when somebody shouted that, they weren't mucking. So I was in a wee back room, half the size of this, but one door in, one door out. Couldn't get no way out of it. Jumped up, and I don't know what overtook me, but I jumped behind the door, and I seen the gunman had a hood on, and a gun in his right hand, and he had Anne with her, and she was like squealing, and you can imagine fighting to get off, but he pulled her around like this. He seen me at the last minute, but if you can imagine, I just said to him, get the gun here, so he let Anne go. I pulled Anne around and whacked him with the door. And I know houses in them days with big heavy oak doors, I'm six foot three and I was about 14 stone and I whacked him as hard as I could. Boom! He knocked him back into the hall and I managed to get the bar on the door. But if you can imagine my body weight against the door as I done that, there was a second gunman on the hall fired through the door and got lucky. And the bullet hit me head and shoulder, down through the ribs, hit the spine and into the back. And the other one went through the front of me, through the ribs and out here. And the bullets missed the baby by inches. You know, really, I mean inches. Wee child sitting there. Um, the ambulance, the policemen got in there. The uniformed officers got into the house, and basically um, done all they could. You know, in terms of stopping the bleeding and that. And then the ambulance men arrived, and they couldn't get the trolley into the back room, so they put me in a body bag. 
At the same time as that was happening, my father and my family arrived in the car, got out of the car at the front door, and were walking up towards the house, and Daddy seen me coming out in the body bag, and thought I was dead. And last words were apparently with my poor Peter, he dropped dead of a heart attack on the spot. So the uniformed officers tried CPR. My sister, who's a nurse, was there, tried CPR. Didn't work. I didn't see any of this. I didn't know any of this. But nobody was able to tell me this for a month afterwards because I had to fight to stay alive as well. The impact of the violence often extended far beyond the injured individual. So, um, I mean, in terms of um, the actual incident, that's what happened. Um, you know, the effect on the children and my wife was also to become more apparent within the years after that. My next daughter um, only told me recently that if she to this day sees a man with a parker with a hood up, she'd freeze for so many seconds. I get a flashback, she's 45. But the worst effect was on my wife. I was diagnosed with PTSD and after it and a slow decline, she was ordered to drinking. And something else would come on the news, another murder and you're watching it. And she'd be sitting there and it would just take her back to what she's seen. And I think it's fair to say that although maybe I didn't see what she'd seen that night. She first of all had him pull her up the hall with her, seen her husband shot down, blood everywhere, then her father in law dying in the hall. And then they had, to, they had to leave the house. She couldn't stay in the house after it was attacked. She used to come back. She had to deal with all that, you know. So I can understand why she was tra- traumatised. But she's one of the unwritten victims of the troubles. That story, that doesn't get out. There's so many people like that. So when she was watching the news some other night, it would come on another murder, another family devastated to see a funeral. It just set her back. And we tried everything. I mean... She was diagnosed with John Alderdice, she was a psychiatrist with PTSD, but they seemed to concentrate on the alcoholism. I took her to AA meetings and done all that stuff. And I think to this day they still should have been dealing with the trauma before the alcohol, but, but the, the end is the thing, well, no, we have to just to be cleared off that before it happened. So she would have got three or four months clean and then something else would happen and just go back. But it took its toll. She died at 51. On the night she died, she hadn't been feeling well, and she said, I was watching the film, and she says, I'm going to bed, I don't feel well. And I says, yeah, all right, love, it's what's the end of this film. I can't even remember what the film was. When I went upstairs an hour later, she was dead in the bed. Just had died in the bed. Um, so that's part of the ripple effect of violence in the families that's not often talked about. Peter and Jennifer, quickly after their injuries, had to re-enter a society completely unprepared for people with disabilities. In 1972, there was no ramps, there's no legislation around with regards to getting back into work. Um, not that you were thinking about getting back into work right away <laughs> after going through something like that. But um, so it was quite difficult, uh, really. When you're in the hospital, it's all open and it's, it's great to get around. But whenever you come back out into society, um, you know, you didn't really see a lot of disabled people around. You know, the bus, they did exist, but um, they were never out and about. Not the way you see people today, running around, you know, flashy wheelchairs and all the rest of it. 
uh, came out of hospital reasonably fit again because we went through all that therapy a year. First time we ever had a six pack when we went in the gym, you know, and I oh, I wish I had it this when I had the good legs, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, but I decided I tried to get a job. I went back to the teaching, and there's no disability discrimination laws in those days. You're talking 1980, and they said to me, "Well, Peter, you know, we have to bring all the classes to the ground floor, and make them look good, and make upset the children, you know, all this." So they didn't want me. So I went back to the insurance people. Peter, uh, I don't think it would work. You know, salesman, you were a big six foot three guy, a big white teeth, a smile. You go into a room, you know, and you're going to go to a call now, and there's steps into the house, and they'll be pulling you up in the wheels, and it wouldn't do some. I said, Well, what about me training salesman? What about something like that? Mm, I don't think that would do. So nobody wanted me. I went back to Queen's and done another year's course in information technology. Um, and then there's computers, the internet hadn't been invented. It was all Fortran, do you remember that 1010 we used to do, all that crap? So nobody wanted me, so I just decided I'd rear the kids and look after the missus. And I, I gave up trying to get a job because it just didn't seem like anybody wanted me. And <coughs> that's the way it was. Due to their injuries, Peter, Jennifer, and others injured during the Troubles dealt with daily obstacles and discrimination, but the hardship didn't end there. Worse still, the compensation they did receive was inadequate, and their experiences were dismissed. Uh, with regards to compensation, we went through the compensation scheme. It's not an insurance scheme. Uh, you go through the Northern Ireland office, the same as a car would, a train would, a bus, or a building. So the human beings were sort of turfed into that uh, dump as well. Uh, they weren't really treated with any respect at all. Um, it was so much for an arm, it was so much for a leg. It was an adversarial system, much did you earn. Uh, for example, I was 21. Um, if, say, another woman with the same injuries was 40 and had been working longer, they would have been compensated a lot more, even though we had the same injuries. So it's very unfair. The compensation scheme developed during the Troubles and in the immediate aftermath of the peace felt like a slap in the face to many who had been severely injured. It dehumanised them and turned their suffering into nothing more than a number. And it came out that a memorial fund would be set up uh, uh, for victims and survivors. So, devastated about that as well. And... So that was set up, and the first thing that I got was a card. Christmas card actually came through the door, and uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And there was a cheque for £50 in it. That was, I'd say that was 2000. That was, what, some 72, 82, 92, some 30 years, was it? Anyway, I calculated it all. <laughs> I went nuts. I just lost it. I just thought, no, this is a joke. So I did ring Stormont um, a couple of times. I was very angry. And eventually somebody came out to collect the cheque, take it out of my house. <laughs> so angry. But I loved getting angry at that time. I never really got angry, but by God, I was enjoying every minute of it. So... Um, Oh, then do you want a fridge freezer? You know, do you need a new washing machine? It was ridiculous. That was I, oh, yes, 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 yes. 
That was the memorial funds. Paul further explains. The people had been left behind, had been treated badly by the compensation, the criminal injuries compensation system that was in place, which was very adversarial, which um, wasn't there to look after the needs of the injured. It was there more like after the needs of the state. Instead of the government coming to you and saying, what can we do for you? You had to go to the government and say, you need to give us some money. But the way it was based, and a lot of people were told, it was based on your injuries and your life expectancy and stuff. And there was members of our group. Um, there was one lady uh, who was 17 in 1975, was injured, paralyzed in the drive by shooting um, one evening, and was told she wouldn't see past her 33rd birthday by the doctors. It's just in her 60s now. Do you know what I mean? So this is the the sort of assumptions that were made around the compensation payouts. I mean, there's a grand a year for the next lot of years and that'll do you. Get on with your life, do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and people, through medical science or whatever, have stayed alive for longer, but that life has, has led to injuries, you know what I mean? And the injury's getting worse. Um, problems with your shoulders, problems with chronic pain, Problems with organ failure and, and things like that. I mean, even my own case, due to my injuries and constant infections over the years, I ended up losing my right kidney a couple of years ago because of just complications with, with infections there. Um, and this one isn't doing the best either, do you know what I mean? So yeah. you've got this sort of whole sense of grievance and a whole sense of people being forgotten about. No, I'm 65. My wife's dead, my children are grown up all over say, um, the world and have their own families and I'm worried. I'm back on benefits, the £70 a week stopped, the compensation that was paid out is gone. Um, basically that was paid out, they reckon you lived 20 years, I've lived 40 years. And what we need now is some way of protecting us into our old age. The injured campaign has tried to fill that gap and establish a source of protection for those still living with these injuries. I met Alec Bunting and a few other guys, and they told me about WAVE. I didn't know about WAVE. And then Eames Bradley came out in about 2009, and it seemed to us they didn't mention the injured. He was talking about you know, the £12,000 of widows, and we were saying, well, what about us that's left? Banjo. So we started getting active then. We, the group that is there now come together around about then. Their proposal is centred around a pension payment, approximately £100 a week for anyone living with these severe injuries. The impact of that money could alleviate the worries and the challenges that they face daily. You know what I mean? That's my, I want to stay independent living. And to do that, I need a wee bit extra. That's why we're campaigning for this pension. Um, it's not about sending us on luxury holidays. We're talking about £100 a week. That would mean I need the grass cut. I can pay a man to cut it because I can't cut it. If I need something painted, the room's painted, or slates put back on the roof after a storm, I can pay somebody to do it. At the minute, that would cause problems financially, you know, paying the other bills, getting the coal in, paying the food, all that. And it would also, um, uh, I suppose, just take the worry away from financial issues. Um, Especially as you get older and maybe needing extra help that you can't get from the state and stuff like that. Um, 
just peace of mind, I suppose. And also, I suppose, a certain amount would be, um, it would be recompense for what happened many years ago as well. There's a certain bit of that in me as well, uh, pushing the state to do something. That theme of recompense and symbolic importance ran through all of our conversations. We asked Dr. Moffat about the significance of reparations in conflicts like the Troubles. So uh, over the past 18 months, I've been leading a project called Reparations, Responsibility and Victimhood in Transitional Societies. Uh, effectively, that what that means is we're looking at about six post-conflict countries, Guatemala, Colombia, Peru, Nepal, Northern Ireland and Uganda, and looking at how, how countries after mass violence, really conflict, try to deliver reparations. And so at the heart of this project, we have been asking every individual, it's about over 200 individuals now across these six contexts, what does reparations mean to them? And I suppose um, in leading this project, um, my understanding of reparations has, has changed and also sort of broadened. And I think for me, reparations is a sort of continuum. In that sense, there's sort of a minimalist version and a maximalist version. The minimalist is the role of reparations in acknowledging moral harm. And what I mean by that is that victims have suffered some sort of wrong and the role of this body, official body, or sometimes even unofficial, is to recognise that harm and to recognise even those responsible. Sort of a maximalist version of reparations is full reparations, that if you've suffered harm, this should be this traditional private law concept of restitutio integrum, of trying not to return the victim back to the original position. The difficulty with this is if somebody suffered torture, disappearance, sexual violence, you can't undo the harm whether that's psychological, physical, um, or even economic. And so sometimes demanding full reparations is a way of sort of frustrating the system because if you've got hundreds of thousands of victims, as there is in Northern Ireland, or in the case of Colombia, nearly 9 million victims, you're never going to be able to afford or deliver that sort of programming to undo the harm. And so I think where a lot of countries succeed is sort of somewhere in between. The acknowledgement, but also the remedy in a sort of a midway point in that it's not going to completely undo the, the victim's harm, but it's at least acknowledging what happened to them was wrong and giving them measures to sort of rebuild their life or at least live a, a dignified quality of life. This acknowledgement has been decades in the making. In the 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, the campaign for the injured has come close to recognition time and time again, only to have it denied. So... We went out and got signatures. We had to get 12,000 signatures, so we stood outside the city hall, went to all the towns, got our 12 and brought that up. That was about seven years ago, so we've been seven years on the go, up and down the Stormont, speaking to politicians, speaking to everybody. and uh, But nothing happened, you know, so quite close again. It might go through. Um, but it'll all depend on, it's really the um, definition of victim that's holding it back. The pension recommendation, say, came out of this, and we had brought that up to, to Stormont back in 2012, and said to our politicians, what about this pension thing? This could be something that could be done. Um, and to be fair to them all, they all went, yeah, this is something we think could be done. We'll do this for you. Um, some of them asked us to go back and do more research, which we did. We had colleagues here in, in WAVE um, who went and found that 
models around the world where these sort of things were already in place. They designed a model based on industrial injuries compensation scheme, um, how it worked for some, if somebody was injured in the workplace, what way that would focus it. So that was the model that was used. The uh, who would qualify, so that would be, were you injured as a result of a conflict-related event? Yes. Were you disabled as a result of this? Yes. You qualify. And that was it, basically plain and simple. Yeah. Sort of going based on the, the definition of a victim, which is pretty much inclusive, which is, were you injured as a result of the troubles? Are you a cur of somebody who was injured in the troubles? Or was a member of your family killed in the troubles? That's it. So that's what we thought this should be plain and simple, but turned out it wasn't. One previous attempt at getting reparations for the victims fell through due to the political deadlock that Paul has alluded to. The consultative group of the past was set up by a Labour government, particularly you know, Mo Mullum, and, we're trying to f and other members of the Labour cabinet were trying to find a solution to sort of give more tangible benefits to victims, and particularly around truth and justice, that there were so many things unresolved post Good Friday Agreement around you know, inquiries, inquests, um, about prosecutions, that it wanted to set up a comprehensive mechanism. You know, it's this legacy commission that they proposed. They were trying to respond to a problem in Northern Ireland that everything's fragmented, that everything is carried out by ordinary justice, like the police service, the coroner's courts. Um, that there's no joined up process, and victims are very much struggling to find legal aid, to find innovative legal arguments to push these agendas forward. And so the consultant group of the past, you know, engaging with victims saw that there was a lot of financial hardship. Can you put a price on life? That's what some fear the Eames-Bradley report on dealing with her past will do this week, with a proposal that next of kin bereaved through the troubles should receive a £12,000 payment. And so for the consultant group of the past, this sort of recognition payment was trying to do a bit of reconciliation work that all mothers' tears are the same, the sort of language they're using. I sort of come from a Christian perspective that we should turn the other cheek and try to do some good. That they were saying that it doesn't matter what the individual done that was killed, the suffering to the family is the same. The problem was that people saw that as moral equivalence. With me are Victims Commissioner Patricia McBride and the DUP's Junior Minister Geoffrey Donaldson. You're both very welcome. But the payment is described in the report as a recognition payment. And I just have a fundamental problem uh, with a proposal that equates, for example, the Shankle Butchers with their victims or the Shankle Bomber with his victims, innocent people who were just out um, doing ordinary everyday things, murdered in cold blood by terrorists. So between you know, a child being killed in a bombing, two people who were going out trying to kill others, they were not the same. So why should they get the same amount of money? Um, and, I, and I suppose that was the sort of difficulty with the recognition payment. It was trying to make all victims the same, when actually some have been victimizers. Issues around ex-combatants receiving reparations were divisive enough that the consultative group on the past's framework had to be abandoned. Once again, these issues have resurfaced in relation to Wave's campaign. So have a look at, at this. Do we, do we actually compare um, a, a, a gunman with a, with a balaclava on, a paramilitary, whatever side they're from, to someone like Donna Marie on the right-hand side of that picture on your television screen uh, right now? 
we're actually bringing forward a proposal that will ensure those 390 people do get a pension. The people who are trying to stop that are actually Sinn Féin. They're trying to block this pension. Not us. We're the people bringing it forward. We want the pension to be paid. Uh, it is our bill. Uh, the people who are trying to block it are Sinn Féin. So, uh, you know, people shouldn't try and twist this and turn it around. We're very clear. We want this pension to be paid. We want it to be paid now, and it should be paid to innocent victims. Let's deal with Northern Ireland then. Shankle Butcher, Lenny Murphy, part of the notorious Shankle Butcher gang, subsequently um, shot dead himself. Was he a victim? We can go through the, we can go through the history books. Try answering the question, Chris. You know, we could pick out individuals, and I could sit here and I could pick out individuals all night no, but long. No, but try answering a question for but, me. In the early days, the DUP would have said, uh, we'd like to help you, but those 10 guys that were injured by their own hand will be excluded. And Sinn Féin would say, well, we'd like to help you, but if they exclude those 10 guys, nobody's getting it. Everybody gets it. Everybody who's a victim gets it. And the 2006 order would say that those people are victims as well. And, and they would say, no, no, nobody's getting it if they don't get it. So you had that Mexican standoff thing, you know, eyeball to eyeball. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the undercurrent. They all agreed and given the pension, but they disagreed on how to deal with this. And so I, I think politically it's very difficult um, to say that with reparations we're recognising victims because victims sort of connotes these moral notions of like innocence. Um, but on the other hand, from a human rights perspective, these individuals suffered unlawful harm. Um, and so to deny them a sort of redress and remedy is saying that these people aren't full citizens. They're not human beings deserving of rights. Well, first we thought it was, this should be okay, but we always knew at the back of our minds that there was going to be issues around this definition of who a victim was here. There had been issues with some of the unionist parties had been trying to get that definition changed since the day an hour had come out. And I think it's it's not so black and white. All our contacts, and even we had the UN Special Rapporteur and Transitional Justice, Pablo de Grief, saying, you know, this shouldn't be a hold-up. In other countries, they've dealt with in other ways. Um, whether that was for political reasons or whether that was for their moral reasons or whatever, it's hard to tell because it, it changes all the time. But in, in my eyes, looking at it over the years, I think it's around the battle of the narratives. So we become the political football and get kicked around the pitch um, and take some good kickings, you know what I mean? And they're trying to score goals against each other by using the pain of victims until it became, they didn't want to play with us anymore. So they just kicked us up into the stands and now we're a deflated political football. Do you know what I mean? Um, so there's other ways we've been working with the Victims Commission to sort of say that these people have different needs. As a civilian, you've got certain needs. For state forces, you know, you might have got a, your, your police pension, your army pension, but others were on short-term contracts. They didn't get enough and were left out, so they need to be looked at. And then we deal with ex-combatants and non-state armed groups or paramilitaries. You know, they've got quite different reintegration needs and uh, harm suffered compared to like civilians or state forces. So it's about tailoring to different needs. It's not trying to say that everybody's a victim. It's say that people have been harmed in different ways and trying to find the right sort of approaches to fit. The story of this campaign has been fraught with obstacle after obstacle. And after hearing it all, a path forward seemed unclear. But the campaign is ongoing and moving forward each day. You can maybe look at that as being an opportunity, having no Stormont, because we had Stormont 
for all the years that we first took the campaign forward and get caught up in all the politics of here. So now we're able to say to the British government, uh, will you do something about it? Um, so hopefully Westminster will sort it out one way or the other. Uh, because certainly our politicians, they're not able to. They're not able to deal with the past. Right. They just fight among each other. That's it. I think with the campaign for the pension for the injured victims, that it's been too long. You know, this campaign's been going on five, six years now. And we need to find solutions that for the public to know why this is important. It's the fact that these individuals have been left in poverty because of uh, the, the consequences of the conflict. That they've suffered quite serious injuries and those injuries are getting worse as they get older. That's the bigger picture. The bigger picture is we, we need to look after people who have done left behind. You don't actually see the sort of the hidden costs on families as well. People who are curs, you know, people who have sacrificed their careers, their life, their day to day, because out of love, you know, for family members or friends, um, where they've taken on these care responsibilities for years. You know, you're not talking about two or three years, you're talking 20, 30 years to look after a sibling, to look after a child, to look after a parent. It's, it's we've been very insensitive. We've ignored injured victims for too long, and we've got an opportunity now to do something good, and we should take that opportunity. There is the messiness of it, but we can find political and legal solutions to deal with that, that will make everybody happy. Um, well, at least we'll find a compromise and make these people satisfied. But at the end of the day, we can do something good for once. Instead of just fighting about the past um, and arguing about it, we can find solutions. And I think when it comes to the injured, the solution is quite straightforward. It's not complex like trying to find the truth um, or trying to find justice and trying to find perpetrators. It's simply just releasing money. And we spend so much money you know, on other things, you know, on roads, which are important, but this is something we could do good. And also set a precedent that in Northern Ireland, we can learn from the mistakes of our past and and share this with all our countries that we care and we're willing to put our money where our morals are and try to deal with the past in a comprehensive way. For the injured group, there is still hope that it is recognition delayed rather than denied. They are currently touring a photography exhibit that highlights their stories, and they are soon off to London to meet again with politicians about the possibility of a recognition payment from Westminster, while Stormont remains in deadlock. Overall, these injuries have been affecting the group for too long without recognition and compensation. There is still the issue of the ongoing political debate around the complex definition of victimhood, but for the sake of those suffering, we hope that this opportunity to address the lasting legacy of violence in Northern Ireland is not delayed any further. In Dr. Moffat's words, it's time to put our money where our morals are. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. Our team for this episode included myself, Sarah Millman, as well as Jeffrey So, with Daniel Spence as editor. Huge thank you to the Wave Trauma Center for their support, as well as Jennifer McNairn, Peter Heathwood, and Paul Gallagher for sharing their stories. Thank you to Dr. Luke Moffat for his contributions to this episode, and to Stephen Mullen, Alistair Charles, Rachel Killian, and Richard Somerville for production assistance. For more information about music and audio clips heard in this podcast, please refer to the episode show notes. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media. 
by finding us on Twitter at QUBLawPod. And for more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for further information on the topics we covered today. You can find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.